Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What is the state of world capitalism as it heads into a second wave of COVID-19? Over a decade ago, the global capitalist system was shaken by a historic financial crisis. It still had not recovered when the coronavirus pandemic caused the worst economic contraction in history. Pandemic, depression, environmental catastrophe, political turmoil. Capitalism is not well. And now a second wave of Covid is gathering pace. What does this mean for capitalism around the world? Will we see mass protests and revolutions? Isn't it the right making gains from this crisis? And what will the US elections bring? This episode of Socialism looks at a world on the brink. Capitalist crisis and the second wave. In the past several episodes, really, we've looked quite a lot at some of the history of the socialist movement around the world and in Britain, although, of course, all of those episodes also examine the situation today and the lessons which the movement today can learn from history. But meanwhile, world capitalism has continued on a path of profound crisis, and we have with us today Hannah Sell. Hello, Hannah. Hi. Who's the General Secretary of the Socialist Party to update us on what is happening for the global capitalist crisis and what that means for the fight for socialism right now. So we're going to start by asking, what state is capitalism in worldwide today? Okay, so obviously that's a big question (laughs) and not quite such long ago history as we've had on recent podcasts, but I have been rereading some of the documents that the CWI produced, our international, back in 2008 and the period immediately after 2008. And all of them drive home the organic, deep-rooted character of the crisis of capitalism. So this was after the credit crunch and the Great Recession exactly. was followed. Exactly, yeah. And making the point that while there'll be a recovery at a certain stage, it will not overcome the kind of depressionary features of capitalism in this era, and recovery would be anemic, short-term, followed by greater crises. And it also made the point, in really all of those documents, that we were heading into an era of revolution and counter-revolution. Mm-hmm and that the capitalist classes were generally in quite a weak position, but were able to hold on to power, to quote from one of the documents in 2009, only because of the absence of a mass socialist alternative and the weak and cowardly role of the majority of the trade union leaders. So... That's frank. (laughs) Yeah, and true. And they were very accurate in terms of how things developed because there were revolutionary waves that took place in different countries around the world, mass movements, public sector general strike even here Mm. uh, in Britain. But while they were all accurate about what took place back then, the main thing you think reading them is that's still all true, but times 20. Mm. It's so much more true today than it was when we wrote it back then. Capitalism... Economically, from a health point of view, environmentally, politically, there are so many crises for global capitalism today. And in a short podcast like this, we're not going to be able to talk about them all. It's just going to be touching on a few of the main features at this point in time. Of course, underlying it is the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. And 
some of the press, at least before the last week when they started to really panic about a new peak of the pandemic, was trying to emphasise this is a V, there was a deep recession, but now it's heading back up again, it's all going to be fine. And we've made the point, because capitalism was already in a very weak state, Mm. was heading into a new recession even before Covid... While there would be some recovery, there was not going to be a healthy growth coming out the other side of the COVID crisis. And it's true that there has been a certain recovery. That was inevitable. So on April the 10th of this year, which was the low point so far, as I'll come to, (laughs) then global GDP was 20% lower than it would have been without the COVID crisis, the pandemic. That's massive. It's huge. There are no accurate figures for now, but Goldman Sachs, the financiers, estimate that it's something now like 8% lower than it otherwise would have been. So there's been like a big recovery, but it's still a gigantic slowdown and Mm. crises because it was so bad. And yes, it's bounced back, but to nowhere near the level it was before. Of course, that's very uneven. The biggest way it's uneven is between the people at the top and the people at the bottom. (laughs) So in the US, 643 billionaires, their wealth has increased by a third since the start of the pandemic. $4.7 billion a day. (laughs) And in the same period, 50 million Americans have experienced losing their jobs. And by the way, without anything else, that is going to lead to a new era of revolt. Because, you know, how can you accept that, that there's this terrible poverty while this enormous wealth for a few at the top? But there are also differences between countries and different sectors of the economy. So for example, at the moment, factory output is nearly back to normal. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as selling what's put out <laughs> of the factory, by the way, but nonetheless. But on the other hand, the service industry is just in a terrible state. You know, the global restaurant industry is just complete state of collapse. Transport, you know, the sectors of the economy that are in a real dire state. No country has come out of it well. But there are still differences. In Europe, there are big differences between Southern Europe and Germany, for example, in terms of the degree of the crises. The neo-colonial world has suffered the most. But if you look at the G7, so the richest countries in the world, it's only China that is predicted to return to just about, but to return to growth this year. Whereas Britain, a lot of economists are saying we're still on course for the deepest recession since the Great Frost of 1709, which, you know, (laughs) is ever really, isn't it? If you're going to go back that far... Why? Why have some countries done so much worse than others? Obviously, there's lots of factors to that. In the end, it's the underlying weaknesses of those economies that were there anyway and have made them less able to cope. But it's also connected to that with how far they've been able to go down the road of gigantic state intervention to keep the show on the road. Well, of course, Britain has had a lot of state intervention and is still in a terrible situation. And we've said before, this is unprecedented, the scale of state intervention, and of course points to the fact that the so-called free market does not work and when the capitalists in crisis then they intervene on a huge scale they use the resources of government and why couldn't they be used for the good of humanity instead of to prop up capitalism but that's what they've done and in most cases they're going to have no choice but to continue down that road because of the catastrophic consequences of doing otherwise but one of the features of the dilemma the capitalists face globally is is that a good idea or not and there's different reasons for that one is People will get used to the idea the state can provide and might start to want socialism. So that's a reason to not want to go further down that road. But it's also, if you read the pages of the Financial Times, they've been debating about the existence of zombie companies because there are so many companies that were already surviving on the basis of huge amounts of debt before the COVID crisis and really are now zombies. So, for example, one estimate says that 
one quarter of all European companies with more than 20 employees will be bankrupt by the end of the year, even with the wage subsidies they've already received and even without a second wave. And then the question is, do they put more state money in to keeping those companies afloat? And their argument against is, well, these companies don't invest. Mm -hmm. They just service their debt. They're dying anyway. Mm. Better to just let them go to the wall. We'll have... a plant. Yeah. It's creative destruction, is the theory. But arguing against that is, it's not going to be creative. (laughs) (laughs) The the crisis of capitalism means that it will just be destruction. It's not going to have new, healthy growth, like after you've pruned a plant, after doing it. But it would lead to massive unemployment, even greater than we're already facing, and to mass movements against that and against capitalism. And that's really what's holding them back. And meaning France, Germany... They've extended their equivalents of the furlough scheme. The US didn't. And they've now got 37 million people facing starvation. It really is back to the 1930s. And there's an argument going on about getting it started again in the US. Of course, in Britain here, they're ending the furlough scheme. Let's see. They could be forced to retreat on that. We have to organise to make sure that's the case. So that's one factor, is the scale of state intervention, which has had an effect on how bad the economic damage is. Of course, another factor is just how badly they've handled the virus. Mm. So Britain, with its absolute absence of track and trace, etc., etc., has suffered particularly badly. So that's another factor in the scale of the crisis. But it's a global crisis. Nobody is coming out of it well. So all of that is a situation up to now. Mm -hmm. However, as we all know, the world and Britain are in really a second wave of the coronavirus. So what about this second wave? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, look, everything I've just said is on the basis that the virus keeps getting better. And we all know (laughs) that's not what's happening. The US has now passed 200,000 deaths. In Europe, then, the levels, the reported cases of the virus are now higher than they were at the peak of the pandemic. Not deaths at this stage, but nonetheless, cases of the virus. And we know here, Johnson is desperately trying to come up with something, which is repression and threatening to put the army on the streets, but at the same time, absolutely no effective measures to deal with the second wave that is developing. I think we can't say exactly, in economic terms, other than to say it's going to make it worse. Mm. You know, there's no question that the question of mass unemployment, misery for the population can only grow on the basis of a continuation of the virus at the current high level. Of course, it's also not clear exactly how the capitalist class or governments are going to react. Like we can see, Johnson is desperate to avoid another full national lockdown. Will he be able to do that? It depends what happens with the virus. Mm. And, you know, I think there's no guarantees on that. From our point of view, the other thing to discuss is what is the reaction of the working class going to be to this new surge of the virus? It's very different to last time round. Last time round, there was a big section of the population who were willing to give Johnson the benefit of the doubt, as people were saying he's a hero, he's doing his best. I mean, that's what the media were saying, and people were going along with that to some extent. Totally different this time around. Everybody can see that the governments, that big business have made a complete hash of this. Mm. However, I think you can't predetermine how quickly you'll see massive struggles on those issues, partly because of fear of the virus Mm -hmm. potentially holding back struggles taking place. But also, it's very clear that the one strategy that Johnson and other governments have is divide people, blame young people. 
blame the people who are going to work even when they've got the virus because they'll starve if they don't, mm. you know? So they're trying to create divisions. And in this atmosphere of fear and worry, fear of losing your job, fear of catching the virus, that can have an effect. Mm. You can see a kind of growth of some divisions taking place and that can delay mass movements taking place, but only delay it. I think if you look back now at the Black Lives Matter movement... One of the reasons it was so vibrant and angry and big and dynamic is because all that anger had been building up with people sat isolated in their houses and then they got to express it. So we could see movements very quickly, but even where there's a delay, it will be like a pressure cooker building up that at a certain stage is going to erupt. So there is then, you think, a prospect for mass movements and even revolutions in this period? Absolutely. And look, before the virus, there were mass movements taking place in a whole number of countries. And there are already, again, you know, what I've said about there may be a holding back of movements in some countries. That is absolutely not the case across the board. Mm. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement, but we've also got massive youth protests in Thailand, Mm. big strike movement in Bolivia, strikes in France in the course of the last week, the Lebanon, Belarus. There are mass movements taking place already, and they've all got different characteristics and different kind of factors driving them but lack of trust in their elites to deal with the virus and economic misery is a factor in all of them and they also all involve broad sections of the working class they're not just sectional movements involving one part of the population they're broad sections of the working class the oppressed and the poor they're very powerful movements Mm. but of course we have to look at why is it that in general they haven't won decisive victories at this stage because you could say the same about the black lives matter couldn't you that was black and white and it was big sections of the working class across the board and in a whole number of countries, but it made some gains with the statues and so on. Where is it now? No, exactly. And I think, you know, it's clear, first of all, there's an absence of leadership of all of those movements, actually. And more than that, almost a complete absence of organisation. And that has consequences. If you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, it's ebbed now, it doesn't mean it can't come back. But I think it's also true that Whereas in the early stages, it was very instinctively a movement that united particularly different sections of working class young people and didn't kind of divide things on the basis of identity politics, but said, no, we've got to come together in common on these issues. Where there's no lead and the movement's not managed to make decisive victories, then more negative and frankly petty bourgeois middle class ideas can kind of come to the fore. So that's also an, a factor which is then more complicating because of the tactics that the movement can then tend to adopt and so on. So it can be complicated and it can mean that movements erupt and disappear the way the Black Lives Matter movement appears to have done. Of course, what's For happening now, under yeah. the surface is a different question. But even that is not always true. In France, then the Gilets Jaunes are back on the streets. And that is a movement without leadership, with all kinds of complications, but they're still fighting. So, you know, it can also continue because of the lack of an alternative for people that they've got no choice but to struggle and their determination. Movements can continue even despite the kind of objective obstacles that they face at this point in time. But for us as socialists, I think it's also really important that we look at what's taking place beneath the surface, not just on the kind of top level of society. So we have to be prepared that it's not just us looking at those movements and thinking, we need political organisation. We need a political alternative. We need mass democratic organisation to decide the next steps for our movements. Other people will be drawing those conclusions too. Mm. If you look back to the period after 2008, 2009, in a whole series of countries, 
new mass left political formations developed, whether it was around Sanders in the US or Corbyn in Britain or Podemos or Syriza in Spain and in Greece, which were new left parties. New political formations developed as people looked for a political alternative. But when we wrote those documents in 2008, we predicted it, but we couldn't have told you where it was going to come from. It comes organically from the movement itself, and we have to expect that again, but on a higher level than last time, having learnt some of the lessons of last time, because, of course, those parties that I've just listed have either betrayed or been defeated or disappeared, and that is a factor in the vacuum that exists at the moment. In the Socialist Party, we can make a difference to that, we're not a huge voice, but for example, we're fighting that the trade unionists and socialist coalitions start standing in elections again mm -hmm. to put a left alternative. And the leadership of the transport union in Britain, the RMT, has agreed with that proposal. So that you know will hopefully now be taking place. And that is a kind of lever to fight for the idea of a new political workers' party. But also industrially, because the other factor is the absence of a lead from the trade union leaders then our members in key positions in the trade unions can often make a difference between union leaders or the union executives thinking we can't do anything from saying, no, we've got to fight because we go and put a clear fighting programme and fight for that and can mobilise members behind it. So we can make a difference. It's not how long it takes for new fighting trade union organisation, new parties to develop. is not preordained and we can speed it up where we intervene. But nonetheless, of course, at the moment, that is a complication in the situation. So the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition is a body that the Socialist Party initiated along with Bob Crow, who was the militant leader of the Transport Workers Union, the RMT and others, which had the idea that in elections, workers needed candidates who would stand in their interests. And in a situation where the overwhelming majority of Labour Party candidates stood for neoliberal pro-cuts positions... This was pre-Jeremy Corbyn. Absolutely pre-Jeremy Corbyn then it was necessary to begin standing in elections. And it was a small beginning, but we did that quite successfully and broadly. Then when Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership of the Labour Party, we didn't stand in general elections. On the contrary, we campaigned for Jeremy Corbyn to win a general election on a socialist programme. We did, for a period, continue to stand in some local elections because at local level there were still many Labour councils, the majority, that were carrying out brutal austerity. So we stood against some of the worst of them. In the more recent period, we haven't been standing in elections because of the Corbyn phenomena, but that has now changed again. Mm. Now, you mentioned when you went back to the CWI's documents mm. at the start of the financial crisis, those analysed the position of the capitalist class as being really, really weak in society. And it was just a lack of an alternative political force, really. And from our view, that would be the organised working class that was keeping them in power. But right now, isn't it... The right, which is mainly gaining from the anger in society, I think people might ask. Yeah, and of course you can understand people asking that because given the vacuum that exists, because of the failure and betrayal of left parties and leaders, the clearest example is Syriza, the party in Greece that won a general election on an anti-austerity programme, went from nothing, from less than 5% of the vote, to winning a general election... Mm but then it capitulated to the demands of big business and implemented austerity. And where that happens, there's a vacuum left and the right-wing populists step into it. So there are a whole number of countries around the world where, particularly on an electoral basis, right populist, far-right parties have made gains. But 
in our view, it would be absolutely wrong to draw the conclusion that that is going to be the only or the main trend in the coming period. But the first thing you'd say is a mistake to say that what that means is the capitalist class are in a strong position. Because hmm. actually, that's not where it comes from. I mean, in a whole number of countries before the COVID crisis, already capitalist governments were led by people who are not fully under the control of the capitalist class. Trump is the obvious example. <laughs> but Johnson is no different. He's mm. a poundland Trump, really. Yeah. He doesn't act in the best interest of the majority of big business in Britain. Clearly not. No. But Brazil, India, there's loads of countries where that was the case. But actually, that was a sign of the capitalist weakness that the only pro-capitalist politicians they could get elected were ones that they couldn't completely control, mm. who pose as standing up for the little men and women. Of course, it's nonsense. They ultimately absolutely act in the interests of big business, but they're not completely biddable. They're a bit out of control. Mm. And that is a sign of weakness rather than strength. Above all, as I said, that's shown by the US, and there's not much time to talk about this, but the crisis of capitalism in America is incredible to watch. This is still the most powerful capitalist country, the most powerful country on the planet. But it's a country in decline. And that is summed up not just by Trump's presidency, but by the presidential election that's mm. taking place now. I mean, look, the character of US society means it's not new to have violence and chaos in presidential elections. In 68, one of the candidates was assassinated. But nonetheless, from the point of view of US capitalism, this is the most dangerous election in the modern era. And why? Because of the role that Trump is playing and the enormous divisions that are being opened up in society where there are, without exaggerating, elements of a civil war now in US society. And although the numbers involved in kind of far-right militias and vigilante groups are still relatively small, they've been given huge confidence by the way Trump has behaved, mm. where Black Lives Matter protesters get shot and killed, and Trump praises the people who did the shooting, mm. effectively. And not just the violent gangs, but the conspiracy theorists. You know, that there's been a growth in all of that in US society. Society, and Trump is fueling it, blatantly and obviously fueling it in order to try and win the presidential election. And it's pretty clear he's preparing the ground to try and claim victory, really regardless, or almost regardless, of the outcome of the election. And that's a really dangerous situation for US capitalism, having a US president who's not prepared to accept the result potentially of a presidential election because he doesn't put the needs of the system as a whole first, but puts himself in a very narrow way first. I think it's obvious that the majority of the US capitalist class would rather have Biden. He's a more reliable representative. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Well, it, yeah. it is, yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, calling Biden reliable is pretty astonishing anyway. Indeed, exactly. But while they'd like him to win, they'd like him to win with a decisive victory because even though then Trump might still try and claim victory and whip up the populist right, and that will be a feature in the aftermath of the US presidential election, whatever, if it was fairly decisive for Biden, they'd stand a chance of getting someone they consider a bit more reliable in office in a fairly smooth way. But that's far from guaranteed, very far from guaranteed, for a whole number of reasons. What Trump has done in terms of the postal service to literally make it harder for people to get postal votes in on time, mm 
in a situation where lots of people are going to be voting by post because of the resurgence of the virus, the fact that the weird, sorry Americans, but the weird US electoral system... I'm sure most Americans would agree with that. Yeah, that means that votes can come in over quite a number of weeks even, means that Trump could declare victory on the basis of people who voted at the ballot box when still the postal votes will tip it quite decisively the other way. But that may not take place for a number of weeks. And it's not simple for the capitalist class because the thing they're most frightened of is class unrest, social unrest. And while they wouldn't want the majority of them Trump to continue, they also wouldn't want a mass movement on the streets which would dwarf the 2016-17 women's marches, Mm. demanding that Trump was out of office while he was bunkered down in the White House with the... I mean, we're talking about elements of the civil war that could really develop on the basis of that kind of scenario. We think you can't call the outcome of the US presidential election at this point in time. We're not soothsayers. And there are obviously a number of different factors. Biden's ahead in most places, including the swing states. And most opinion polls say what happens with the virus and what happens with the economy. The worse the economy, the worse the virus, the less likely Trump is to win. So those things are not looking good for him Mm. at this point in time. But at the same time, as you intimated, Biden is not just a candidate of the capitalist elite. He's an absolutely woeful candidate (laughs) of the capitalist elite. And he's managed to read a few sentences out on autocue, but how is he going to manage the debates with Trump? I mean, you know, it could be a complete mess and Trump is whipping up the law and order card on a massive scale sending in the National Guard against Black Lives Matter protesters and then blaming democratic government at regional, local, state level for the violence that's taking place and so on. And that can have a certain effect with a layer of people. So for all of those things, you can't call the outcome of the election. But what you can say is whichever way it goes, yes, you will see a further growth of right-wing populism, the dangerous right-wing militias and so on that we've seen in the last period. But bigger than that you will see big opportunities to the left. Mm. 70% of millennials in the US say they would vote for a socialist. There is a widespread feeling of we need something different to this rotten capitalist society. And there's no question they'd be out protesting against Trump. But there's also the question a Biden presidency will act in the interest of big business, will be crisis ridden. And then the idea we need a third force. It's not enough to make the mistake that Sanders made of trying to change the Democrats. Mm. We've got to start to build a new mass party of young people, of the working class on a socialist basis. So this is not at all a situation where it's just the right in ascendancy. Yes, there are dangers from the right, but there is also the potential for mass movements and radicalisation amongst the working class to the left. But if Biden did win, he would bring some stability to the US and therefore to global capitalism, wouldn't he? Well, I mean, global capitalism, I'm sure, would much rather that Biden was the president. And relative to Trump, it would be hard to be more destabilising, wouldn't it? (laughs) But at the same time... Individuals play a limited role in history. Trump was elected because of the crisis of US capitalism and the crisis of US capitalism will remain whether or not he is the president. So it would absolutely be a crisis-ridden US and a crisis-ridden world under a Biden presidency. And that includes the ratcheting up, which is one of the big features of world capitalism now, of tension between the different regional blocs. We had debates in our international, even longer than 10 years ago, about the question of globalisation, where there was a minority who thought that globalisation was an irreversible process, it would just continue. But in our view, with the majority of us, always argued 
that while it had gone a long way, undoubtedly, the integration of the world market, capitalism is not capable of fully overcoming the limits of the nation state. And once capitalism goes into crisis, that competition, those barriers, tend to come to the fore. And that is absolutely what is taking place, a process of de-globalisation, if you like. And that includes all kinds of different tensions around the world, within blocks, the tensions in the EU, for example, between blocks, the fact that we've now got a standoff between Turkey and Greece with a real danger of a naval conflict between two members of NATO. <laughs> you know, so... But the biggest is between China and the US. That's mm. the biggest tension in the world. And look... Biden and the Democrats do not have a fundamentally different position to Trump on the question of China. Of course, they'd be less quixotic, less, well, less Trumpish, <laughs> more consistent, I think is how Biden himself has put it. But they've pledged to go further in strengthening the Buy American rules that Trump has introduced for state expenditure in the US. They've not committed to restoring the WTO rules that Trump has driven a coach and horses through with his tariffs against China. And in the end, that reflects the fact that the US is the strongest power on the globe, but it's declining. And no imperialist power in history has given up its place without trying to do in the competition. Mm. And even though it will weaken capitalism globally and in the end it's cutting your nose off to spite your face, they cannot stop themselves from introducing tariffs to try and prevent Chinese capitalism being strengthened further. It's not a simple process. There are plenty of American companies, particularly finance companies, making a lot of money in China because they can make money there. So it's not a question of complete barriers, but things are heading in that direction because they're frightened of the development of China. And just on that, while it's slightly overtaken the US in terms of total GDP, still, in terms of GDP per head, China's only 68th in the world. Mm its military budget is still less than a quarter of the US's. Mm -hmm. The dollar at this stage remains the global currency. So we shouldn't exaggerate. The US is declining, China's coming up, but it's not a finished process. Mm. But nonetheless, relatively, in the first wave, things can always change in the second wave, China has come out of the pandemic better than the other major powers. It's been further strengthened, which is reflected in the fact that it's the only one that is predicted to go back into growth this year of the major powers. Now, that is because of a conscious policy from the top. It's the special character of the Chinese state, which has centralised gigantically, and that's been crudely betrayed by some kind of Western capitalist commentators of this is a return to a planned economy mm. is nothing of the kind. But it's state intervention on a massive scale to boost Chinese capitalism. That's what they're attempting to do. But that's had a certain effect. There's limits to it because production is right back up. But they've got a very limited home market. There's 80 million people unemployed in China as a result of the COVID pandemic, only 3% of them get any benefits. They can't afford to spend a lot of money. And as the tariff barriers go up, where are they going to sell their goods? Mm. So, you know, there's future crises, but nonetheless, at this stage, relative to the US, China is in the ascendancy. What will change that? Mass revolt linked to the inevitable economic crisis. So if you look at the movement that's taken place in Belarus, to give a kind of comparison, that 
was a society where it wasn't in any way a planned economy, it wasn't socialism, but it still had more state intervention than most of the other ex-Soviet states and relatively good living standards. Mm. And that was a central factor in why people weren't happy about it, but they put up with the undemocratic nature of the regime. Now there's been an economic slowdown, and that is a central factor in the huge revolt that has taken place. And in a similar way in China... It can look like a very strong regime, but that's based on economic growth. As that model starts to fall apart, as it inevitably is starting to, they already had much slower growth than they'd had for decades before the recent period. Then you can see both mass revolts of the working class, but actually also splits between different sections of the elite, Mm. with some of them wanting to have more money for themselves by moving, you know, wanting to free themselves from the Chinese state, Mm -hmm. and others thinking that that's still the best way to go. So this crisis and mass movements ahead in China as well, but on a global basis, I think the most important thing for us to recognise is there's no stability ahead. Capitalism is in a period where there's not one dominant power where there's different powers fighting amongst themselves, not going as far as a world war because of the existence of nuclear weapons, but nonetheless increasingly in conflict against the background of a general slowing down depressionary period in the economy. And on top of all that, we have an environmental crisis and we have this COVID health crisis. This is a very crisis-ridden system. But what's inspiring is... Despite the lack of leadership, we're seeing workers around the world start to fight back and that can only grow in the coming period and give opportunities for the development of mass support for socialist ideas in general, but specifically for revolutionary socialist ideas, for the the idea that it's necessary to have a complete break with this capitalist system and build a completely new democratic socialist order. And as always, if you like what you've heard, then recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, join the socialists. Anna, thank you very much. No problem. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Hannah Sell and I'm James Ivins. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, the 20th to the 23rd of November. Join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, you can upgrade your ticket nearer the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity. Solidarity.